Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Hello, as part of today's episode, Pod Save the UK is talking about AI. So we thought we would get ChatGPT to write our intro. Are you ready, Coco? Affirmative. <laughs> That's just me. It's not. Okay. <laughs> okay. Here we go. We're now into ChatGPT. Hello, lovely listeners. I'm Nish Kumar. And I'm Coco Khan. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Pod Save the UK. The podcast where we navigate the murky waters of British politics, culture and everything in between. That's right, Nish. We're diving deep into the world of UK politics, which is sometimes as unpredictable as British weather, but way more interesting. And Coco, I hear you've got a special investigation lined up for today's episode. Absolutely, Nish. We're uncovering the mysteries of British tea drinking habits. The scandalous truth about sugar, milk and the perfect dunking time will be revealed. It's a matter of national importance. Thank you for tuning in. And remember, it's Pod Save the UK, the podcast where being British has never been so much fun. What do you think, Coco? Have we... <laughs> Have we just put our producer out of a job? It doesn't make sense, Nish. No, it was absolute shite. We just kept saying over and over again, Pod Save the UK, Britain! Pod Save the UK, Britain! <laughs> it's like some like, weird Tory like, conference speech. <laughs> Hi, Coco. Hi, Nish. Very strange to read the ChatGPT intro. Yeah. I liked the stage direction. That's what we should clarify, that yeah. the, the ChatGPT scripted it as a script. We put we, we, The request that was put in was that it would be an intro script. So it, it's formatted like that, and so it has stage directions. So when I said to you the podcast where we navigate the murky waters of British politics, that was instructed as slightly mock serious. <laughs> I think you nailed it. <laughs> You're a pro. <laughs> I, I have genuinely... <laughs> No idea. But I feel like there are some people that would prefer if the podcast was just about TV. <laughs> also, I like that it said, um, ChatGPT said it would be a scandalous truth about sugar, milk and dunking time. <laughs> scandalous. Oh. Yeah, I'm intrigued. Yeah, like the sugar's being applied by someone dipping their dick in your tea. <laughs> oh, no. I thought it was going to be something like, oh, you know, big sugar. <laughs> and we're going to reveal the truth of big sugar and we'll have like a, a picture of a mug on the podcast artwork and it'll be like, do you know the real cost of your tea? This is good, actually. I might pitch this. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, later in the show, we'll be with uh, the Financial Times' tech reporter, Christina Criddle, who is at Bletchley Park, which is the venue for Rishi Sunak's AI Safety Summit. But before we get into that, we should briefly uh, talk about this. Sophie from St Albans has WhatsApped us to say... I had no idea that the podcast was so politically influential. Today's YouGov poll tracking the important political topics. Do you sit down hard or soft? Are you commissioning polling now, Sophie has asked. So just to be clear, yeah. YouGov this week, we, we didn't know they were going to do this. They've run a poll uh, asking people uh, if they sit soft like Coco or collapsing into the sitting position hard like me. <laughs> And this was a reference to last week's episode where at the end of the podcast we said, oh, let us know. And we sort of joked being like, oh, yeah, this is the survey you, Gov, would never do. And they said, hold my drink. 
<laughs> they ran it. And the results are that 59% of Britons sit down soft like me. Uh, and it's uh, 25% for Nish's way, the hard way, collapsing into the sitting position. I'm amazed that they've run the poll. Yes. I'm sort of thrilled. I feel slightly drunk with power. I'm excited to see what else we can get you guys. Maybe. To do Did you look into the results though? Did you actually? No, spend I didn't. Time? I was okay. too flabbergasted by the existence of the poll and yeah. it made me laugh too much. And then I didn't realise it's only literally when we were doing the prep chat this morning that you said, oh, well, there's a whole breakdown. I yeah, thought it was yeah, just yeah. something they'd done as a joke. So the results are broken down by uh, region, social grade, age, uh, gender and voting, how they vote, right? And they polled just under 2,000 people. So it's legit. It's a real thing that they've done. (laughs) And then in terms of politics, it does feel like soft-sitting tracks with Tory, which I'm not delighted about, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) I, I don't really know how to understand it. Is it something about like manners is it something to do with age because Tories tend to be older and actually another aspect of this survey found that the older you were the softer you sat that that makes a lot of sense to me (laughs) you you probably get a bit more careful with how you sort of throw your body around oh maybe that's true as you get older which makes sense to me but the other uh finding based on political parties is that the voters who voted for don't know were strongly liberal democrat and i found that very funny (laughs) I guess there was no option for sitting on the fence. Well, <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said that now. I'm so angry. <laughs> the holidays are coming up and the Crooked Store has everything you need to get festive, which I know is obviously everyone's first priority. And what better way to say, thank God, 2023 is almost over than with an indictment-inspired ornament to remember the year by. There's also a bunch of cosy sweaters that are perfect for that family holiday party where you get cornered by your conservative cousin. Head to crooked.com forward slash store to shop. In UK political news, Parliament is once again in recess ahead of next week's King's Speech, but there's been no shortage of political theatre thanks to the appearance at the COVID inquiry of some of the key figures at the heart of Boris Johnson's number 10. The inner workings of the small cabal of politicians and officials at the heart of decision-making inside Downing Street was laid bare in a series of sometimes excruciating private WhatsApp messages aired at the inquiry. If Boris Johnson was watching the live feed to see what his old colleagues were saying about him, he probably switched over to Homes Under the Hammer. As we record this, the former Deputy Cabinet Secretary Helen McNamara is giving evidence to the inquiry. She said it would be hard to pick a single day when COVID regulations were followed properly in Number 10 and the Cabinet Office. Earlier this week, Lee Kane, one of Johnson's closest and longest serving aides, pointed the finger at him for causing dither and delay and said COVID was the wrong crisis for this Prime Minister's skill set. It's hard to know what the right crisis would have been for this Prime Minister's skill set, given that his skill set seems to just involve getting people pregnant. (laughs) Uh, So, I mean, I'm yet to be convinced of any of this man's talents. But echoing what Lee Kane said, Simon Case, who was the most senior civil servant at number 10, accused Johnson of constantly changing his mind, saying that he cannot lead. Johnson's former chief of staff, Dominic Cummings, also had some choice words for those working around him in number 10. Due in large part to your own WhatsApps, Mr Cummings, we're going to have to coarsen our language somewhat. I apologise. You called ministers useless fuckpigs, morons, c***s, in emails and WhatsApps, 
to your professional colleagues. Do you think you contributed to a lack of effectiveness on the part of ministers and of the Cabinet? No, I think I was reflecting a widespread view uh, amongst uh, competent people at the centre of power at the time about the calibre of a lot of senior people who were dealing with this crisis extremely badly. Well, of course, the name-calling and tittle-tattle isn't really what matters here. This is about the mishandling of a deadly pandemic which cost thousands of people their lives. Probably the most serious and troubling bit of evidence to emerge this week came from the diary of the former chief scientific advisor, Patrick Vallance, in which it suggested that Boris Johnson thought that COVID was nature's way of dealing with old people. This is a, a, a text or WhatsApp um, between, you and, uh, sorry, between you and the Prime Minister. Uh, on the, we'll see the 15th of October. Um, he says, I must say I've been slightly rocked by some of the data on COVID fatalities. The median age is 82 to 81 for men, 85 for women. That's above life expectancy, uh, so get COVID and live longer. Hardly anyone under 60 goes into hospital. I no longer buy all this NHS overwhelmed stuff. Folks, I think we may need to recalibrate. And you say all understood. But how does this change the policy, still not politically viable, to change course? He says it shows we don't go for nationwide lockdown. Now, previously we've talked about the economic arguments against lockdown. This seems to be introducing a slightly different theme. Uh, and I want to show you very briefly some other entries in Patrick Balance's diaries from around this time. Um, so could we look at them Sequentially, please. First of all, it's, it's 273901. First of all, page 150. So this was a little bit earlier in August, where Patrick Balance has recorded that the PM WhatsApp group kicks off um, because, of some, because the PM had read about the uh, infection fatality rate. Um, and it says this, he's obsessed with older people accepting their fate and letting the young get on with life and the economy going quite a bonkers set of exchanges. If we can look at page 308, please. Uh, on a similar theme, um, picking it up a couple of lines down, PM says, his party thinks the whole thing is pathetic and COVID is just nature's way of dealing with old people and I'm not entirely sure I disagree with them. That was Andrew O'Connor KC addressing Lee Kane at the COVID inquiry this week. Makes yeah, for I mean, it's hard um, listening, doesn't it? It's hard listening. And I think it would be very easy to dismiss this as saying we all knew versions of this. And in a lot of instances, it's confirming remarks that were rumoured to have been made, especially the one about the uh, get COVID and live longer. That was something that had been reported on previously. Um, I think it's definitely worth... Uh, noting that that screenshot that that WhatsApp conversation comes from was the 15th of October 2020. So the Prime Minister's very casual tone about this suggests that he learned absolutely nothing from the fact that by that point he'd contracted the disease and nearly died from it. And he survived in part because he was privy to the kind of medical care that ordinary people were not afforded. Mm. And the kind of casual dismissal of people over a certain age essentially just being offered up to die is a disgrace in of itself. And then what compounds that is this idea that he didn't understand that it also posed a threat 
to younger people. And he learned absolutely nothing from his own brush with the disease. I, I think that there was a vacuum of leadership at the heart of government. And someone like Dominic Cummings, it's all very well and good him saying all of this now, but I, I, it all slightly reeks of um, an attempt to kind of write the history first of the events and try and push himself to the forefront. He seems to be a man with very, very little capacity for self-awareness or self-reflection. He seemed to be contrite for the language that he used and seemed more contrite about that than his actions when he broke lockdown regulations by taking a trip to uh, the northeast of England, which he still maintains were within the boundaries of the, the regulations. I mean, it's... The whole thing is disgusting. I feel like it's a, a really good insight into the just like pure selfishness at the heart of how he thinks and other conservative ideologues like him think. I mean, like, even if it's true, I mean, of course, I don't agree with sacrificing elderly people in this way. But even if I did, like, that doesn't even make logical sense. That's not how families work. If yeah. you have an elderly relative, you look after them. Now you're out of the workforce. Now you're getting ill. Yeah. We, we are social animals. We work together. It, it, I feel like it reveals something about him being like, you You really don't believe in society at all, do you? Yeah, like, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's so individualistic. Um, I'm not surprised that the COVID-19 bereaved families for justice have been absolutely outraged by it. I just want to read um, what they tweeted. It said, I feel like I've been punched in the stomach after reading Boris Johnson's messages this morning. While COVID-19 was ripping through the country and I was doing everything I could to protect my mum, he was unable to take decisions and left the country at the mercy of the virus he was supposed to be protecting them from. By the time the second wave came around and thousands like my mum had died, he was saying that if you caught COVID, you would live longer, that he didn't buy all this NHS overwhelmed stuff and agreeing that we should let the old people get it. He clearly didn't see people like my mum as human beings and thousands others died unnecessarily after the same mistakes were repeated because of Johnson's callous and brutal attitude. I'd do anything to spend another day with my mum. And now we know that we might have had years and years together if only the country had a more humane prime minister when the pandemic struck. I mean, it's it, it definitely gives you pause for thought about what qualities we need from our leaders. Mm. Um, Helen McNamara, who was the target of some of Cummings's most spectacularly bad language um, uh, has been giving evidence uh, as we record. Um, and she's uh, actually just told the inquiry that at one point, the then health secretary, Matt Hancock, posed as a cricket batsman whilst discussing COVID and said, they bowled them at me, I knock them away. And she said that it partly goes back to my point about nuclear levels of confidence that were being deployed. And I think that this cocktail of incompetence mingled in with absolute self-confidence had fatal consequences for thousands and thousands of people and their families mm. uh, in the period of the pandemic. And whilst there's a part of all of us that must naturally be looking at this thinking, well, we already knew that about this man and we already knew that about these people, it, it, it to me reinforces the essential work of this kind of public inquiry, not just in terms of the technical preparations that we would need to undergo to prevent the kind of consequences that any future pandemics might have on British society. But I think it goes more fundamentally to the heart of what we want our political leaders to be and what kind of leadership we demand from them. Yeah, and I think this is a, a culture that I can't wait to see the back of, basically. 
We'll be returning to this subject again uh, in future episodes. I've no doubt of that, not least because Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak are both expected to give evidence before the current inquiry module ends in mid-December. Labour's big issue this week continues to be the party's response to the Israel-Gaza crisis, with 60 Labour MPs now calling for a ceasefire in defiance of the leadership's official position, Keir Starmer is facing one of his biggest challenges so far. So the Labour leader made a speech this week to clarify his position. He said calling for a ceasefire was not the, and I quote, correct position at the moment and that a humanitarian pause was, again, a quote, the only credible approach. Starmer said a pause would allow aid to get into Gaza and for hostages to leave. He also argued that a ceasefire would leave Hamas's infrastructure intact, enabling the group, which is regarded as a terrorist organisation by the UK, to carry out future attacks. Mayor Sadiq Khan and Andy Burnham, as well as Scottish Labour leader Anna Sawa and 15 frontbenchers are among those who have taken a different view, but there's been no indication they'll be punished for it. It's a tricky position for Starmer now, right? Because it's not, this isn't like, these aren't fringe figures in the Labour Party. These are hugely significant members of the party and they're now calling for a ceasefire as well. I'm sort of struggling to see why a ceasefire isn't the right thing to do um, at this point in time. It's, it's essentially accepting this huge amount of civilian casualties. And I think the cardinal principle here at all times, in all the ways we talk about this, is civilian death is unacceptable. Right, absolutely. I think it's not complicated to say that civilian death is wrong. I don't think it's complicated to say that children being killed is wrong. Um, So I feel like Starmer is very much out of touch with the people. I'm very interested to see how that plays out in terms of votes. And it is also just interesting that his official position, Labour's official position, is the same as the government's. Okay, I suppose the only contrast is that at this moment in time, it doesn't seem like he's going to sack any politicians who, who don't toe the line. That is Obviously, in contrast to the Conservatives, Rishi Sunak has sacked MP Paul Bristow from his government role as a ministerial aide after he wrote to Sunak demanding a ceasefire. And we've lived through this before already within this century, where a terrorist attack with appalling civilian death toll leads directly to collective punishment. And we had a Labour government that enthusiastically supported that policy and it got us absolutely nowhere. And so I, I don't see how calling for a ceasefire now is still considered to be a kind of fringe position. I just think that there's a danger here that we're not learning the lessons of extremely recent history. Compassion, peace, solidarity, right? That's the only thing that can challenge this idea of we are in opposite sides and there is no middle ground. Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's sad to see our leadership not supply that um, when there is so much of it abundantly on the streets in in, in the general public? Well, look, on that subject, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets around the UK uh, and have done so over the past three weeks to show their support for the Palestinian people. There's also been support and sympathy for the families of the Hamas victims and hostages after the 7th of October attacks. Of the former group of marches, let's listen to what Home Secretary Suella Braverman thinks. You've seen now tens of thousands of people take to the streets following the massacre of Jewish people, the single largest loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust, chanting for the erasure of Israel from the map. To my mind, there's only one way to describe those marches. They are hate marches. Coco. 
You were on the ground yeah. at one of these marches uh, over the weekend. Did it feel like a hate march to you? I mean, it didn't feel anything like a hate march to me. You know, the the kind of main chant being chanted, there were quite a lot of them, um, but the main one was ceasefire now. Most of the banners were around ceasefire now. I would actually say that the most the kind of most poignant emotion that, that I observed when I was there was, was one of grief. I think everyone was very, very sad. Everyone was very down. Um you know, look, I, uh, it, it was a huge demonstration. I think there's quotes of up to half a million people there. And I, I was there, you know, to see what was happening. But also, yeah, I do support ceasefire. So, and that was what that march was was for. I'm sure there was a minority of people, opportunist bigots, who see this conflict and want to use it to push their hateful, twisted agenda. And those people should be dealt with by the authorities and also be dealt with any protesters who see it, you know, pull them off stage. There's no space for racism, anti-Semitism, abuse in a peace movement. There just isn't. Like, yeah. please fuck off. But, you know, to, to, to smear all of those people, families, children, elderly people, all races, all religions, it seemed like, it was a real proper mix of people to say that all of them support terrorists and that they want war and blood. I mean, it's just, it's just not right. And that is not in my view, leadership. Leaders are meant to help society see the humanity in each other. They're not there to throw fuel on the fire. Do you know what I mean? And I, I, yeah. I was really disappointed to see those comments. It also erases uh, the huge role that in this country and across the world, including in Israel, that Jewish groups are playing in protesting the conflict. It, it, it seems to me to completely ignore and you know you can it's very easily accessible to find the footage because they're protest movements they want people to see them there's huge jewish voices calling for a ceasefire and calling to an end to violence in gaza oh yeah i mean yeah like i said that 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 diversity on the ground visibly jewish people visibly muslim people i have my theory which i think is that suella breverman is she's shoring up her leadership play i think also this is like a play like she's throwing red meat to the right the hard right of the exactly and i think also we have to see this in the context of protests in general. Suella Breverman hates protests. But I also have a personal theory, which is, I'm not sure she's ever been to a protest. I I do wonder, like, just in terms of reality of what happens at a protest and in reality of what happened, did she, what planet is this woman on? You know what I mean? Well, I I would simply say that Suella Breverman has repeatedly been asked by groups monitoring anti-Semitism and there's many Jewish people and Jewish groups to stop using phrases like cultural Marxism which is an anti-Semitic trope dating back to Germany in the 1930s. She, that, that has happened repeatedly to her. Anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, neither have any place in a credible peace movement. And serious global conflicts cannot be an excuse for you to bump up your leadership bid. Pod Save the UK is brought to you by Carryuma. Carryuma has been our go-to trainer brand for a while now because they're really comfortable, they go with everything, and they're made with consciously sourced materials. I love my Carryumas. I wear them all the time. I also wear my Carryumas all the time. Should we match? No, no. absolutely not. You don't want to match trainers? I don't know. That's not the look Why I want not? for us. It's not the iconic duo I'm going for. You don't want to be matching trainers like like our mums dressed us the same <laughs> for a photo. 
<laughs> well, let's circle back on that offline. But anyway, <laughs> last year we collaborated with Karayuma to create No Steps Back sneakers. And we can't believe they have now designed a second limited edition collaboration, the Love It or Leave It sneaker. These shoes have a colourful design full of Easter eggs, not at sort of Taylor Swift level, just fun stuff like Pundit on a surfboard. Plus, a portion of the proceeds from every single pair sold is donated to the Vote Save America Every Last Vote Fund. The first Karayuma collab sold out very quickly, so if you want a pair for yourself or the Love It fan in your life, make sure to snag one now. They make the perfect gift for the holiday season with free returns. Just head to crooked.com forward slash store. From Palo Alto, California, to a small town just outside Milton Keynes, uh, anyone who's anyone in the tech industry, including Elon Musk, has decamped to Bletchley this week for Rishi Sunak's big AI safety summit. The political attendees aren't quite so starry. Uh, It's Kamala Harris rather than Joe Biden. And other leaders like Macron, Schultz and Trudeau have also opted out. But significantly and somewhat controversially, China have sent a delegation. This gathering has been driven by our very own tech bro, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who's attempting to position the UK at the centre of international efforts to regulate AI. The political and industry leaders are expected to back new efforts to promote so-called responsible AI, a term that refers to stopping the technology from causing societal harm. So Christina Criddle, tech reporter for the Financial Times, is at Bletchley Park. Hello. Hi. Hi. Let's talk about Bletchley. It's a hugely iconic choice of venue. How close to the action are they, are they letting you get? The media are being kept in a media centre, which is in a building very separate to where the delegates are. Um, we're allowed to watch some sessions, not that many, um, virtually. And we do have some briefings happening, but we're definitely not able to mill around and speak to delegates at our will. Uh, but we have still been able to chat to some people if we're organising them ourselves. But it's been a little bit tricky. But as you say, very historical venue. And there's lots of very high profile people here. You'll see that there's Elon Musk, Sam Altman, Eric Schmidt. All of those people probably don't want mobs of journalists um, right. approaching them. OK, so thinking about who's not there, though, there's been some criticism for not involving civil society organisations. Of course, the likes of TUC would be very interested, not least because of the impact of AI on jobs. Amnesty and Liberty have also signed an an open letter warning that little can be achieved without their presence as well. I mean, what's your thoughts on on who isn't there? Definitely. And there's a big debate going on here. There are some members of civil society invited here and you have some academics here as well. But there's certainly a feeling that not everybody is at the table at the moment Mm. and perhaps not the most present risks are being discussed. There's lots of talks of catastrophic risk and that's what you're seeing in the communique that's been signed by the countries today and so there's lots of focus on very existential problems that AI could cause in the future whereas we know there are lots of problems like algorithmic bias which are happening right now and those aren't being discussed as much as perhaps other people would like. Can you can we just drill down into that the 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 sort of more day-to-day concerns like algorithmic bias can you just unpack what we what you mean by that phrase? Sure. I mean, we're seeing how algorithms can uh, be biased in the way that they operate. Some of the most common examples are in things like healthcare, where they might only have data on a specific type of skin that people have or a specific gender. And then that means that when that's fed into a computer, it only delivers outcomes for those people. And so it's partly a problem with the data that we have in society as well, which tends to favor white people and men. Um, 
also there's things like algorithmic decision making in you know whether you're getting a mortgage or something like that which would be which have been discussed in the past things like facial recognition as well have flaws um and these are the things which are present in our society now the risks are already known and being debated but they're not a big fat feature of the summit here this summit what are the what are the express aims of it is the idea that everyone will leave and they'll know exactly what's going to be banned what isn't going to be banned what some design principles are or or what some testing principles like what's the aim of it the aim is absolutely not regulation i mean i think they have tried to bring lots of people to the table but you're not going to come out of this summit with like okay this is what regulation is going to look like this is what's allowed this is what's not allowed this is very much a place where people from companies people from different governments which might not be aligned on their values are coming to discuss what the risks are what potential solutions might be but not to make any decisions about it um but that in itself is still something to be recognized the fact that you have china here and china signing a document which says they'll work together with governments around the world is still pretty impressive um so i think that has to be recognized but things like concrete legislation which lots of people are waiting for it's unlikely that we're going to see anything like that coming out of the summit i wondered if you could sort of talk a little bit about the kind of arms race in terms of the development of ai and how quickly we're moving so one of the reasons they've decided to convene this summit now and do it so quickly the government's pulled it together in a matter of months when normally this kind of thing could take at least a year to organize the reason they've done that now is because we have these new chips which mm-hmm. power ai which power computers um they're coming out now and so the next generation of ai models is going to be coming very soon the uk government wanted to bring everybody together before those happened so you can talk about the risks and understand what those risks are before the next step of the technology comes through and and they were saying today you know people don't know actually what the capabilities of this next lot of the ai is going to be and that's actually a real concern it could be this huge existential harm but it could also be used for good and so the reason they want to be talking about it now is because there is this imperative and there is this gap between the next models coming through whether regulators and governments can catch up and actually put something into law before then it's still really unclear you're sort of in the room with the kind of major players in this do you get a sense that they want any kind of regulation or you know what's your sense from from the actual corporates so the big tech companies have been saying you know we want regulation we're speaking about this now we want governments to be telling us what to do obviously they've already stepped ahead of that and signed up their own voluntary commitments formed their own frontier model forum for the leading tech companies in this space um some critics are saying that's their attempt at a regulatory capture to basically frame what these laws are going to look like before the lawmakers even get there themselves there are a lot of criticisms that they're they're at this summit that they're some of the most influential voices at this summit as well um and we know the lessons of social media where big tech companies were basically not really regulated at all until all of those harms started coming out and we only just got the UK online safety bill through parliament now kind of years later so i think there's this awareness that tech does like to self regulate its incentives are commercial obviously um but they have voc- been vocal about wanting regulation but they do know that it takes a long time too is there is there a generational issue with 
the gap between lawmakers having to make laws around technology that they simply don't understand. Certainly, that's a concern that some people have. And also something which I know a lot of people in Silicon Valley use as sort of, you know, there's no point in regulating us because you don't understand it. We're moving so quickly, so it's not going to happen anyway. I think that's a convenient excuse. And certainly, like, AI is really hard to understand. And the more you learn about it, it's even harder to understand. But that shouldn't be a reason not to try and not to try and regulate. And actually, the UK government has been hiring lots of people who do know about AI. They've set up an AI task force to address this kind of thing and hire more people with expertise into government to understand it better. And also, it's the onus is on the companies too to be more transparent as well about how their systems work to everyone, to the public, to lawmakers, to really be able to explain what the risks are. You need to understand how these things are operating. Something that I've been thinking a lot about, and to quote the great Rosie Gaines, ooh, we're moving too fast and I don't think it's right, <laughs> is about how, you know, there's this culture from Silicon Valley, like, you know, move fast, break break things, right? And I just in the context of society, I'm not I'm not sure that's great. I don't think we should be breaking things. I'm, I'm, I'm all about like, let's go slow and be considered. You know, that, that's sort of what I'm looking for. You know, you've got all these leaders together. Is there a sense of a slowdown or a sense of a, maybe we need to stop and think a little bit, lads? I don't see a lot of the companies slowing down at all. And so it it's kind of a moot point until that really happens. Um, meanwhile, these chips are really hard to get hold of, but some people do have hold of them and they are developing on them. The capability is coming. The AI is getting even more advanced, faster, really, really impressive. And so if we wait, if we pause, are we going to get to the point where it's accelerated so fast that it's beyond control? Right. That's something to consider. Um, Just viewing this from a sort of UK political lens, um, Sunak is definitely trying to push the idea that the UK is now a leader on uh, AI regulation. But that's not really accurate, is it? Because the US has announced a raft of measures at the start of the week. The EU's pushing something through at the moment. To what extent has he succeeded in pushing the UK to the forefront of this conversation? Yeah. As you see, the the US has big-footed a little bit. I would say this week you've seen the executive order coming out just as the summit was about to begin, and you've seen this announcement of an AI safety institute by the US um, as the UK AI summit tries to do the same. So there's certainly a view that the US is is asserting its dominance. Um, At the same time, the EU's AI Act is kind of the most advanced legislation we have. The UK will hopefully have something similar soon but we don't know when that's going to be um i think one of the benefits of the uk and something that the government has been keen to emphasize is we've hosted this event we've brought everybody together we do have this historic base of being somewhere for tech um we do have a lot of talent coming in universities and tech companies here and they're desperate to hold on to that title but again what the legacy will be, especially what Rishi's legacy will be if we have a different government soon and where our place is in AI is still all up for grabs. And certainly I don't think we're even close to overtaking the US or China in in their position on AI. So we temporarily lost Christina. We've now got her back um, due to some tech problems, which the whole thing feels very apt. Uh, given the summit, technical problems may as well be the whole 
<laughs> the whole byline of the entire thing. So, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about the the problems with AI, but I feel like the case for AI has never really clearly been made. Our politicians tend to sort of look at technology as the solve all to everything, to all surveillance problems, to all policing problems, to all health problems. Meanwhile, I'm having issues nearly every day. Unexpected item in bagging area, how I long for a cashier. And so I just wondered what actually are the tangible benefits of AI? I think there are lots of ways AI has already made our lives better. So things like drug discovery or in scanning for um, viruses, cancers, you know, you can use AI for good and AI can just process data at a, at a scale that humans can't. And so if it's used in the right way, it can definitely bring positive things to society. They're talking about how it can be used for good in education as well. Um, I think it's good for us to focus on the positives. And I think there's probably lots of ways that AI is impacting our lives that we don't really realize for good. Um, but we should be cognizant of what the flaws are as well. Around the time that this episode comes out, uh, Rishi Sunak is going to sit down for a one-on-one -on -one chat with Elon Musk streamed live uh, on X. Is Musk really uh, the right man for this, given previous comments he's made and his record specifically on regulation. Is this the right conversation for Rishi Sunak to be having? Musk is obviously a controversial figure. He has been involved in the AI space for a very long time from its very beginnings. I mean, he helped to create OpenAI, which is now one of the leading companies in the space. It wasn't a company at the time. Um, he knows a lot about this area. He's obviously one of the richest men in the world. He's hugely influential. And X or Twitter, whatever we're calling it, Huge platform still. Lots of people will be watching. And I do think it's positive that the prime minister is trying to engage with, with the public on something like that. Um, who will be interviewing who? I will be very interested to see. And how Elon manages it will be quite interesting to see as well. From, from what I can tell today, he's very much been in a listening position. So he's not said very much. He's just been in the sessions, taking it all in what persona he's going to have in the interview. Who knows? He's very unpredictable. We shall certainly be watching closely. Thank you so much, Christina. We really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Christina. Thank you. Pod Save the UK is brought to you by Even the Royals on Wondery. When you take a closer look at what it means to be royalty, you'll see that it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. On Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, they pull back the curtain on royal families, past and present, from all over the world. And you can listen for free wherever you get your podcasts. From one of the most infamous royals in history, Marie Antoinette, but everything you know about her is wrong. Or Catherine de' Medici. History branded her as a cold and power-obsessed manipulator, saying she was responsible for one of the most devastating massacres in French history. But she was an orphan who spent her life as a powerless hostage, and her determination to rise to power led her to some dark places and some desperate measures. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. 
And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. So just time for our Pod Save the UK Hero and Villain of the Week. Nish, you're going to kick us off with your villain. Uh, it's the um, Alliance for Responsible Citizenship Conference, uh, which is a new global right-wing conservative group which has been holding its first get-together uh, in London this week. This is Global Britain, guys. <laughs> Please come over here and spread your... Crackpot marmalade all over the toast of our nation's national discourse. Um, uh, appearing uh, were speakers uh, ranging from the entire spectrum of politics, as long as your spectrum for politics is about 2%, and it's quite hard to the right of the Conservative Party. Um, uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, the new US Speaker of the House, uh, Mike Johnson, a man who uh, infamously said that America desperately needs to go back to 18th century values. Wow. Crucially, a century that exists before the abolition of slavery. Uh, His predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, uh, was also there. Former Australian Prime Ministers John Howard and Tony Abbott were there. And there was a strong representation from the Conservative Party. Uh, Kemi Badenoch, Michael Gove, Miriam Cates and Danny Kruger uh, were all there. Um, And uh, also, apparently, according to the Daily Telegraph, a surprise cameo from uh, one of my co-workers. Apparently, Jimmy Carr was present uh, holding court. Far be it from me to uh, disparage the uh, personal activities of any of my fellow comedians. But uh, uh, I don't know if the Botox has drifted in Jimmy's mind. Uh, but uh, it does seem to be uh, an interesting choice of activity for him of a weekend. Um, good luck to the guy, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Good Good luck to the guy, and I guess, get fucked. Yeah. Um, the uh, event is part of efforts to uh, shift the gravity of the Tory party uh, to the right and link up with like-minded politicians uh, across the world. Um, uh, another speaker there will be... Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, who's a prospective presidential candidate. I guess in a weird way, though, as much as I am a prospective presidential candidate, given what he's applying for is the job of the Republican candidate at the next American election, which is presumably at this point going to be Donald Trump appearing live via FaceTime from a jail cell. But uh, there's a huge amount of climate denialism. There's a huge amount of Old Testament biblical rhetoric flying around. Um, But unbelievably, the stated goal of this entire thing is to try to solve the fragmentation, division, polarisation and intolerance afflicting society. And on that, I would say sometimes it takes a thief to catch a thief. I would just say maybe if you've caused a lot of fragmentation, (laughs) division and polarisation and intolerance, you know how to deal with it. Okay, Coco, take us out on a cheerier note. Who's Hero of the Week? So the Hero of the Week is 
as is every week, the great people. It's the people. It's a great story of people power this week because this is about the campaigners who helped force the government to U-turn on closing hundreds of train station ticket offices. I think we've spoken about this on the podcast before. It really wound me up. Uh, the plans were put forward by train operators as a way to save money. It would have resulted in almost all of England's remaining 1,007 ticket offices closing in the next few years. You know, there's a book by Carolyn Criado Perez. Mm. The book's called Invisible Women and she talks about a world designed by men and how it lets women down and potentially puts them in danger. For me, this was an example of a world designed by people who obviously have money, comfort, perfect health, uh, youth. It just sort of stank because there's so many people who need train station ticket operators. You know, if you have a disability, if you are elderly or even if you're just skin and you don't have a phone that has access to constant internet data you know like you need these people here and it was really heartening to see that there was a u-turn now the reason for that was because of the fantastic work of some unions uh there were several protests there were uh, threats of legal challenges from disability campaigners and from five labor metro mayors but also there was just a swell of outrage from the general public. So the passenger watchdogs, Transport Focus and London Travel Watch objected to the proposals and they received 750,000 responses from individuals and organisations in a public consultations. Listen, never, ever, ever dismiss the power of a British strongly worded letter. <laughs> you cannot stop a British strongly worded letter. They are extremely potent things. And I'm just absolutely delighted that this is a victory for for that it's it's a it's a testament of people power it's a great example of how we can all work together politicians activists unions and people and uh, i just only wish i had some of the complaints here to read them i bet the sort of the the sort of acerbic wit would have just just bounced off the page do you know what i mean <laughs> so yes uh our hero of the week is the great british public their strongly worded letters and for getting this u-turn done fantastic So we've had a few messages coming in about our chat on last week's podcast with housing policy expert Toby Lloyd. It's well worth listening to. If you haven't heard it, you can find it on our feed. So on YouTube, Cara Kask 5488 posted this comment. It said, I love Toby Lloyd talking about how he changed the messaging at Shelter to appeal to the people that needed to hear it, i.e. conservative politicians. I think that more organisations need to do this. So many get so into their message and the praise they get from their circle that they forget to actually get something done. Yeah, I mean, I love talking to Toby and it was interesting and inspiring to hear somebody talking about things that they've been able to achieve and hopefully push through while they were in government. Um, at Annie New Forest 2533 makes a really important point about renting again off the back of the chat with Toby. The psychological toll of renting cannot be underestimated. On any estate agent website, it's all red carpet, champagne and Vivaldi for owners. It's just water and bread crust for the unworthy applicant. In the estate agent's world, the distinction between propertied and propertyless couldn't be sharper. One is an inherently deserving human being, the other a means to an end. You're lucky we're here to take your money, they say. Oh, wretch whose parents didn't love you enough to buy you a house. Well, I mean, very well said. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone who's listened to this that rents would disagree. A friend of mine was in the process of trying to rent a new flat and was finding that every single place was going for above the um, stated monthly rental price. And sometimes they were finding that out during a viewing with the estate agents. You know, you're in a viewing with the estate agent. The estate agent just says, oh, you know what? Forget it. They've already 
someone's willing to pay £100 more than the asking price, which... And that process is so incredibly stressful. Looking for a place to live and the instability of being a renter in the private sector is terrifying. Oh, my God. Especially if you, imagine if you have kids or you have, like, accessibility issues. I mean, it's an absolute nightmare. This is kind of related, but there's a scheme going on in Hastings at the moment, a bit like Homes for Ukraine, but instead of your spare rooms going to a refugee, it's just other people in Hastings. Wow. Because there's that little housing. What the fuck yeah um so yeah it was it was such a crucial conversation to have with toby lloyd about getting stuff built you know and yeah. uh, all power to him for for succeeding in, in moving that conversation forward uh elsewhere in the mailbag <laughs> uh, we've had quite a troubling email come in uh, and not just because it's sent by someone whose name that they have given us is big tits <clears throat> uh anyway this is what uh, big tits says do i need my leftist credentials revoked for fancying rishi sunak Oh, and I don't sit down niche style. I actually feel sick reading this, but I probably would if the seat in question was Rishi's lap. My whole body cringed. I didn't know that the sort of, I didn't know knees could cringe, but they did. They did. Big Tits has tried to drag us into this as well and said, uh, could Nish and Coco discuss if there's any Tories that they fancy? Absolutely not. (laughs) No. Not at all. It does feel like it's quite a big, it's a big no-no. I feel like maybe, you know, probably someone I fancied between the ages of 16 and 21, where in our, whatever, our political selves were maybe not fully fledged, maybe one of them became a Tory. Yeah. Like, I could imagine that maybe happened. I, I but think, a politician. I hate no. to speak for big tits, but <laughs> I think they are specifically referring to politicians. Uh, just to be clear, I, I, I'm not sure... That I fancy any politicians. I don't know. I think that there maybe is like a mental block that I've got. Well, I mean, politics is celebrity for ugly people. Everybody knows that. <laughs> I thought that was comedy. Oh, I thought that was media. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, okay. Maybe there's obviously a lot of sectors. <laughs> I, guess, I guess what we're learning is that just there's a lot of ugly people around. <laughs> We've sort of managed to create miniature ecosystems <laughs> yeah. in which we become attractive. Yeah. Is that good or bad? But listen, big tits, who you desire is is up to you. Yeah, there's no judgment here. There's a little judgment, (laughs) but there's no more judgment. judgment. There's no judgment than you absolutely anticipated when you sent that message to us. I would genuinely like to know, and I'm nervous about asking it because then we'll get a response and then maybe we'll read it out and then maybe we'll perpetuate this dishy Rishi business. Yeah, yeah. Which I, you know, I against. (laughs) I am very much against. But what is it about Rishi that big tits likes? Is it the short trousers? I've no idea. Is it the the sort of robot speech? People kept marrying Boris Johnson. <laughs> we have to assume that tastes are broader than the human mind could possibly fathom. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, you can get in touch with us by emailing. Multiple women <laughs> have married Boris Johnson. How many he, wives has he had? I, I, I genuinely can't remember, but wives is only about a third of the problem. <laughs> You can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk. We love hearing your voices, so do send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514-644572. And internationally, that's plus four four seven five one four six four four five seven two. I'm trying to do it from memory. And you did it successfully. Maybe a little bit. Anyway, we'd love to get your thoughts on what we've discussed on this episode. You can send us in a question about British politics or suggest something you'd like us to cover. Or your just thoughts on... um, Rishi Sunak sexually, I think, is also welcome. Is it welcome? Pod Save the UK is a reduced listing production for Crooked Media. 
to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop with additional production support from Annie Keats Thorpe. Video editing was by Dan Hodgson and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer, David Degahi. The executive producers are Anishka Sharma, Dan Jackson and Madeline Herringer with additional support from Ari Schwartz. Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram where we're at Pod Save the UK, all one word. And hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Amazon, Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Fuck you, Jimmy Carr. <laughs> <laughs> 